your women in science history podcasts i'm one of your co-hosts emlyn gremlin and i'm the other co-host emma dilemma still closet problems <laughs> i have to tell you something before we start oh that i I'm think scared. no no, no. it's okay. good it's cute so my nephew was in town this weekend yes and we went to brentwood social club it has like a little ship outside it's like for kids to play in so i was sitting out there with some coffee and i was working on my laptop while my nephew ran around and it was it was just like a little boy fest Um, and this little boy came up to me and pointed at my laptop and so my laptop's covered with caitlin friesen's art so like all of the various stickers from all these women and he was like what are those and i was like oh they're uh women in science stickers and so he went with he went from the top corner who's that what did she do? Who's that? What did she do? Wow. And we so went through every to. single sticker. And his mom was like in the corner just like chuckling and like, what is happening? Oh my gosh. And it was That's really cute. it was really cute. Nice he was just like, what about her? Educational. What about moment. her? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Put the pressure on me. Yeah. I had to, to remember. remember. <laughs> <I know. laughs> and succinct, succinctly tell this four year old what each sentence. of them did. Yeah. yeah. Well, see. It started when she was... Um, <laughs> she was born in 1906. Yeah. <laughs> That's my little fun yeah. fun thing that happened this week related and to Stemfetal. she uh, had to hide in her house for a couple <laughs> years while the Nazis like tried to track her down. Um, <laughs> he'd just be like, he'd be like what? excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> He's not ready for that. No. No. But it was pretty cute. Yeah. yeah. That's really cute. Um, I'm glad that he was interested at yeah. all. <laughs> Versus just like, never mind. <laughs> my um, my nephew, we went on the train around Zilker Park also. Wow. And I've never done that. Was it, it awesome? Was fr- um, I'm surprised. It is wild. Really? It is. Seems very unsafe. Oh. Um, oh. But the conductor was a female and like he, it took him a long time to comprehend that that was a possibility. No way. He was like, but she's a, it's a she. It's like, yeah, <laughs> but she's a conductor. He's like, mm, He's like no. No. <laughs> That's really weird. Huh. But then he thanked her well, after. Now he knows. Now he knows. Yeah. Learning experience. Mm-hmm. And also, where's our women in conducting podcast? Yes. <laughs> need it. Need it. Need it. So then she drove a train. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it would be like trains, yeah. planes, and automobiles, and it's just women who drive things yeah. or fly things. Except, oh, that's a podcast. I thought you were saying remake that with women, and I was like, did you see how things <laughs> no, no, no. Ghostbusters? Uh, it, would po- it would be a podcast. <laughs> Uh, let's just make new things yeah. that are better. Yeah. Okay. Um. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I got a question for you, Emlyn. I'm ready. Um. Have you ever heard of the Codex Nuttall? <laughs> can you ex- can you spell that? C O D E X space N U T T A L L. 
Nut all. Natal, I guess. Nut all. It's nut all. Okay. Um, no. <laughs> it sounds what fun. What do you think it is? Um. Or it could be. It lo- It seems like it reminds me of a watch. Mm, okay. That has like those truck nuts attached to it. Like a little... Oh, so kind like a little, of like it has like a little dangle, like a, it's a kind of like a charm bracelet mixed yeah. with a watch, but mm-hmm. just little truck nuts. You couldn't be further from the truth, <laughs> but that's better than what I would have said, probably given the name of it. Given me not a lot to go on, yeah. Emma. <laughs> well, what it is is a 14th century um, Mexican manuscript. <laughs> A pictographic manuscript discovered or kind of rediscovered by Our Lady of the Day. All right. Uh, Zelia Nuttall, who was an archaeologist and anthropologist. <laughs> you set me up to make truck nut jokes about her last name I now. I can't. I know. That's why I was like, this is a bad idea. <laughs> this can't go well. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's uh, my fault. I okay. Yes. I just thought it sounded funny. I'm five <laughs> years old, just like your nephew. <laughs> um, but uh, I still respect her. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. Some, good start. Yeah, but you ready? I'm. Uh, yep. I'm ready. <laughs> oh, great. I started this off poorly. Didn't I've already I? shoved my hand in my mouth. So. I should have asked you a more respectful no, no, no. question. If that's respectable, I don't know. It's a word. Anyway, today's, <laughs> today's hard. Yeah, today's woman in science is Zelia Maria Magdalena Nuttall, who was born in San Francisco, California, on September 6, 1857. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Her father. (laughs) Set the stage, her father. Her gorgeous namesake comes from Dr. Robert Kennedy Nuttall was an Irish immigrant working as a physician in San Francisco. And her mother, Maria Magdalena Parrott Barrera, was the Mexican-American daughter of a wealthy San Francisco banker. So those are her parents. Love it. From an early age, uh, Zelia became interested in Mexican history and archaeology after her mother shared with her a series of books called The Antiquities of Mexico, which depicted a lot of ancient codices Uh. (laughs) of early Mexican civilizations, which are essentially like drawings of people, gods, animals, or pictures of uh, they, the book also contained like pictures of pottery with symbols. Think like ancient Egypt, you know, drawings mm-hmm. that you see. It's similar to that okay. but for like the Aztec. Okay, and, that's cool. Yeah, Mayan societies. Okay. Um, her family was quite well off in San Francisco and had kind of high status in their community. And this allowed uh, Zelia a lot of privilege throughout almost all of her life like this she started off in this good place Mm -hmm. and I think it kind of allowed for a lot of opportunities throughout her life um so she received a 
a decent education, especially for a young lady at the time, um, which I guess was considered the Victorian era. I don't know. I don't know my eras very well, but that's what th- something said. 1857. Oh, okay. 18- yeah. So let's see. When she was 10, her family moved to Europe, and it's there that she learned a bunch of different languages like French, Spanish, and German as they traveled throughout the continent. Good to know. Yeah. I mean, good things to know. Yeah. And they returned to San Francisco in 1876 when Zelia was 19. I don't know what else happened during that time. We, it's a need-to-know thing. Yeah. And we don't need to know. We don't. In 1880, at the age of 23, she married the French anthropologist Alphonse-Louise Pinard. I think. Does that sound French? Yeah. You, you done good. And he had been working in the Pacific studying linguistics and folklore of people from Alaska to South America. Hmm. And she traveled with him for a couple years through the West Indies and Europe and in 1882, oh, I did it. I did the 19th. <laughs> in 1882, they came back to San Francisco where she had their daughter, Nadine. Nice. However, despite loving the life of an anthropologist, she was not happy with this anthropologist, oh, no. Alphonse. Um, and in 1884, filed for a separation. I didn't trust him from the beginning. Yeah. I don't know. A French... <laughs> Frenchman traveling the world. What's there to trust? It can okay. only be bad. Know. Sorry if there are any Frenchmen listening. O- only those that travel the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other ones are trustworthy. Yeah. Okay. So in 1884, Zelia filed for separation and in the same year uh, traveled with her mother, her younger brother, her younger sister, and her two-year-old daughter to visit Mexico for the first time. And her mother was born in Mexico, Mm -hmm. and her mother's mother was from Mexico. So I think her mother. She has some Mexican roots. Yeah, I think her mother had spent some time there as a child because her grandfather, Zelia's grandfather, Mm -hmm. her mother's dad, was a diplomat there. Gotcha. Yeah, which is probably how he met her grandmother. Uh Yeah, anyway. So they went to Mexico, and she ended up staying for about five months working in the National Museum. Yeah. I don't know how she got this gig. I think she was just like, had maybe gotten to know people through her husband yeah. at that point. I'm not sure. That's cool, though. Yeah. Did the rest of them leave? I think they just stayed All... with her. I just think they were wealthy. and When you could go on, like, five-month trips. Yeah. And it was cheap, too. Like, yeah. some of these things they describe... And here, like, they, she buys a house for $1,000 later. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So jelly. Things that don't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, so while she was there, she completed her first archaeological dig. Nice. In which she collected and then described small terracotta heads from the San Juan uh, Teotihuacan archaeological region in Mexico City. And this work became the crux of her first paper, which was first published in 1886 and only published. Why did I say first published? It was published in 1886. (laughs) There wasn't a bunch of new, uh, you know, edits. But she published it again and again for the rest of her career. Second edition, third Um, edition. Yeah. And she published it in the American Journal of Archaeology and the History of the Fine Arts. Long journal title. Yeah. Um. 
while earlier researchers had described these same heads, they what had, are these heads? They look like little like are they clay. heads? Okay, so yeah. they're clay, like kind of doll heads, kind of yeah, yeah. How'd she get into this dig? Did she go with people? No. Did she just don't know? Take a shovel. I think she just did what she wanted to. <laughs> okay. And just knew people and be like, uh-huh. oh, can I come with you uh-huh. to look at that or something? Yeah. I'll have me some terracotta right. heads. Um, yeah. So earlier researchers had described what they look like, but mm-hmm. they couldn't, they didn't date them or place them in any historical context. They were okay. like, we don't know when these are from or like why humans would have made these or anything like that. But by, but what she did was she compared these uh, terracotta heads to it sounds so funny terracotta I know. heads um, to others collected around different time periods mm-hmm. essentially like to look at how I guess like comparing different techniques for making them or like materials used in making them and she was able to conclude that they were made by the Aztecs near the time of the Spanish conquest. And had likely been attached to bodies at some point, but those bodies had been made of biodegradable materials versus the heads, okay. which were made of a diff- the terracotta that doesn't biodegrade. Gotcha. Yeah. And, like um, creepy little dolls. Yeah. And essentially they were probably portraits or figurines of individuals that represented the dead okay i take it yeah. back they're not creepy they're fine <laughs> i mean that's kind of creepy i guess so the dead are creepy it's okay okay thank you we can respect them and think they're creepy at the same time. <laughs> okay and this paper is pretty major considering that although she had a lot of priv- privileges um and could receive an education that many people and women of her time couldn't, she still had no formal education in the male-dominated field mm-hmm. of archaeology and anthropology. Yeah. And and she wasn't working for anyone either. It was just like this very independent discovery that would kind of be the crux of her whole career. Mm-hmm. Like, that was what her whole career was like, just okay. sort of these independent discoveries. It was also a time where North American and European researchers were dominating these fields and Mm -hmm. they would just sort of go abroad collect things from these places and bring them back to their home countries and then tell the stories of these things without really getting to know the context of the region or people Mm -hmm. or cultures from where they collected Mm -hmm. things from whereas she became very enmeshed in okay in the cultures of the of the items that she studied. Yeah, we really just, we stole a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Some people would just go and take things and literally sell them. Yeah. Instead of, like, even studying them. Yeah. You know, they were just like, I found this cool thing abroad and yeah. now I'm selling it because it looks cool and yeah. exotic or whatever. But she was interested in learning the stories, really. And Layla McNeil of the Lady Science Research uh-huh. Group, I found a paper, she wrote an article about this for the Smithsonian. Cool. And she said that when Zelia began studying in Mexico, Mexican politicians and intellectuals, like society member, you know, were interested in gaining more power over how their history was being depicted around mm-hmm. the world. Um, and 
Mexican archaeologists were going to play a huge role in that, especially Zalia. And, and at the time, everyone was debating whether present-day Mexicans were direct descendants of the country's former Aztec empire or not. Okay. And so her work would be crucial to sort of contributing to both of these issues or questions. Yeah. Very cool. So, okay. As a result of this paper on the terracotta heads, she was elected to the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And Frederick Putnam, an anthropologist at Harvard's Peabody Museum, gave her a position as honorary special assistant in Mexican anthropology at the museum. Which is just like one paper. I know. That's so crazy. Um, and she was like in her early 20s or yeah. mid 20s at this point. And he just said like she was familiar with the native language nah- Nahuatl, I think. And she had um, intimate and influential friends among the Mexicans with an exceptional talent for linguistics and archaeology. So she just really understood these things on mm-hmm. a deeper level than anyone had previously. It makes a big difference if you're interacting yeah. and talking the language of right. the people that whose history you're studying. Yeah. It's a lot less, um, it feels a lot less uh, colonial. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, and, you know, it's sort of weird. She's like this in-between person. Like, yes, she has Mexican heritage, but... She's still American mm-hmm. and like has a lot more wealth than majority of people in the world even mm-hmm. and more education. So she's kind of this, I don't know, but she would go back and forth between these two worlds with like a lot of ease. So um, anyway, okay. After this short stint in Mexico, Zelia and her brother George moved and her daughter Nadine moved to Dresden, Germany for 13 years. Okay. And where, but while she was there, like she's kind of traveled a lot. Mm -hmm. So she would go all around Europe, travel back to California a lot, travel back to Mexico. And she spent a lot of time visiting museums, libraries, and archives in different countries to find essentially lost items from Mexican history um, and archaeological like manuscripts and stuff. What do you do? What do you mean? Were they are they lost from like they have records of them but can't find them? It's sort of or... like from what I can understand, it's like they have these things but nobody has described them. Okay, and, and they don't know like the context yeah. or their. It's sort of like at the time, and even now, this probably happens. Like people collect random works that they think look cool Mm -hmm. they think they're from this certain place they're told they're from here or there but nobody had actually studied the works Mm -hmm. to say like yeah this was actually made by these people and Mm -hmm. this is what this item is telling us it's like um if you collect butterflies from all over the world but you haven't identified them them to species or something like that's what she was looking for like things that had been taken from Mexico essentially ended up in like different people's hands over the last 400 years. And now we're in some like Baron's collection of mm-hmm. artifacts and he thinks they're from North Africa. And she's like, no, <laughs> or something. Okay. Yeah. 
So it seems kind of fun. Yeah. Indiana Jones-ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like inverse Indiana Jones. Yeah. Wait, what was his deal? Well, because he was going and finding oh, lost the items. Place. And these are ones that are found, but their mm-hmm. context and yeah. history aren't known. Yeah. They're sort of lost. Yeah. yeah. That's what The history is lost. Yeah. So let's see. Um, while visiting California, she met Phoebe Hurst of the Hurst family. Have you heard of them? I think so. You know, do they like, own Hearsts? William. <laughs> no. No. You mean Hearses? Yes. Or is it a T? No, I don't know. Yeah. Um. No, they're just like a super wealthy family. I think they were. I feel like I've heard of them, but I couldn't tell and you. Media owners, why. and now they have Hearst Castle. That's a thing in California. Okay. I don't know. They're super rich, essentially. Fine. I don't know why. Uh, yeah, I like. I don't know why. Okay, <laughs> this the is podcast like, isn't about them. Yeah, exactly. It's what I was just gonna say. <laughs> um, but she became friends with Phoebe, and who was she was already a, a benefactor of the University of California's Museum of Archaeology. Mm-hmm. Phoebe was, and um, she liked Zelia's work a lot and became a long term sponsor of many of her trips around the world essentially where do i find me one of i know them like she would just send her letter like oh i want to go here there do this or that it's pretty strange but in return zelia would often bring back artifacts to put in a museum Mm -hmm. so not all the time but sometimes in 1888, she was finally granted a divorce from her husband. When did she try? When did uh, she separate? 1884. Oh, okay. Yeah, not too long. It just was a busy couple years, gotcha, I guess. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. It seemed like a longer. I know. And she gained full custody of their daughter and got her maiden name back. Mm. And after that... In 1891, she contributed an almost 50-page paper to a volume on American archaeology and ethnology by the Peabody Museum, in which she had studied and described a historical Mexican feather headdress. (laughs) Can you imagine, like... 50 pages. Yeah. That's really getting to know a headdress. Yeah, you need a lot of adjectives in your back pocket for that. Right. I mean, some of them have pictures, I'm sure, like, maybe not. Drawings, yeah. Yeah. I guess that's like when you identify a species. Right. But they're not that long. No. Um, Maybe it was a very elaborate headdress. She had found it in the Imperial Museum of Natural History in Vienna, and it had only recently been discovered that the headdress was not of North African origin, but instead of Mexican origin. But nobody had really gone any further than to say, this is not what we thought it was for like mm-hmm. 300 years. But she used information about, like used what she knew about Aztec history um, and culture to determine more about the headdress and describe it in its meaning in full detail, essentially. It's amazing that there were just people that were like, I'm going to take this headdress, I'm going to take this, and then I'm just going to like throw them all together and forget where they came from. Yeah, and just totally, and sell them to someone and tell them they're from this region. Yeah. Because that's cool right now, basically. So, yeah. Then in 1901, she published her largest work, which is titled 
the fundamentals of new and and old world civilizations. And this was kind of a culmination of that 13 years she spent traveling Mm -hmm. around. That's quite a title. I know. Like, it sounds like everything. Yeah, it's like I figured it all out. But in this, she describes things like the astronomical origin of the swastika, which I had no idea is represented was represented in a lot of different cultures hmm. before the Nazis. I knew used that, it. Yeah. but I don't know what the astronomical so like, connection is. Um, there's star, some star thing that looks like that. Diff- all a bunch of different cultures caught on to, I guess. That uh-huh. it, <laughs> yeah, that it originates from. So there's the Little Dipper. There's yeah. the big swastika. <laughs> God. Okay. That's bad. Yeah. Um, and the worship, she also describes the worship of the pole star in Mexico. She hypothesized in this large book that geographically distinct civilizations had much more in common than, than anthropologists previously thought. Mm-hmm. And that there was likely more communication between the Americas and Asia in early human history than previously thought, but more recent researchers have shown that that is likely incorrect. Okay, but that's okay. That was not her most influential mm-hmm. contribution. You to don't you get don't get a hundred percent of yeah. them right. But she is well known now among archaeologists for her ability to find and restore historical artifacts like manuscripts. And one of her most famous findings is a manuscript that is now called the Codex Nuttall. Yes. <laughs> Or sometimes called the Codex Boucher Natal, <laughs> which is um, depending on whether or not you uh, credit the baron who bought it from someone. No. Yeah. Okay. Essentially, <laughs> this manuscript is a document from the 14th century written in Mexico before the arrival of Christopher Columbus. It contain it consists of 14 pages of colorful mixed tech pictures pictography on animal skin which just mean mixed tech was the population of uh, mesoamerican peoples in central mexico Um, and it depicts the genealogies alliances and conquests of several uh, 11th and 12th century rulers of a small mixed tech city state in highland oaxaca um, especially under the leadership of the warrior lord eight deer Jaguar Claw. <laughs> yes. So many things happening with that name. <laughs> Eight Deer? Oh, that's what I should have asked. If you were a warrior lord, what would your name be? Eight Deer war- uh, Jaguar Claw. <laughs> really? Yeah. You're just going to steal his Lord Eight Deer Jaguar oh, Claw? <laughs> lord Eight Deer. What would I be? I'll be Nine Cat um, Wolf Bite. Huh. Um, I'll be three bean salad <laughs> <laughs> what beans pinto beans garbanzo beans and uh black beans and then black beans yeah that sounds good yeah okay um <laughs> so this codex was lightly likely brought to europe in the 1500s and eventually wound up in the hands of robert curzon the 14th baron Suchet. <laughs> So many names. That's, so that's where... Oh, 14th Baron Boucher. Jeez. Boucher. Spelled it. That's where it's sometimes called Codex Boucher Natal. Gotcha. Um, and Is it Natal? I don't know. Okay. I mean, I don't... 
Not nowhere when you read things yeah, does yeah. it tell you how to pronounce them. Natal seems less um Natal. Yeah. That's two T's, so it could be. Just nut all makes sense. I, I can't I can't like take can't it seriously. Take, I, <laughs> I looked sorry. up um pronunciations. Mm-hmm. How'd that but help? It didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like just people saying it, not this is how she pronounced yeah. it. Let's say Natal. Natal. There. Okay, so he was a wealthy, the guy who had the codex was a wealthy English baron that liked to collect manuscripts. Yeah. That was his thing. You could just do that, I guess. There's some weird things that people collected. Yeah. And still collect. And she had somehow figured out that he had this manuscript and tracked him down mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. made a copy of it and wrote. With his permission? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like she had an artist make a copy of it. It sounded like she stalked him, broke into his house, made a copy. Like very. Um, yeah, uh, it sounds like uh, Mission Impossible. Yeah, Mission Impossible or like um, Indiana Jones, uh, Ocean's okay. Eleven. Oh yeah, yeah. Twelve, thirteen, no, fourteen. No, I don't think it was quite that exciting. Eight. I think she just like went to England and was like, "Hey, can I look at your manuscript?" Yeah, fair, fair. And then she. Uh, wrote and published a report translating it and describing its meaning, and that was published in the Peabody Museum. Okay, cool. So she could somehow, like, know what every symbol, most of the symbols meant and, like, explain what it means, which is really nuts. I have to say that I um, now am contemplating the idea that there's, she has two alter egos, Natal, upstanding... Uh, upstanding archaeologist, uh-huh. nut all, b- Ocean's Eleven <laughs> bandit breaks into people's houses, yeah. steals their manuscripts. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Tell me when it's Natal or Natal. <laughs> okay, I will. She described that it's not just a picture book, like mm-hmm. many people thought, but a historical text describing events that had occurred at a time. Okay. Like it actually was telling. A historical... It was like a factual... Yeah, not just like a story, I guess. And in 1903, she published another codex with her interpretation of it that she had rediscovered in a museum in Florence. So that was kind of her thing for a bit. <laughs> that okay. seems Natal. Yeah, Natal. Yeah, okay. straight Natal. In 1905, Zelia finally moved... Decided to move to Mexico City with her daughter for good. And f- that's where Phoebe Hearst bought her 16th century mansion for $1,000 that became known as Casa Alvarado because it had previously belonged to the Spanish conqueror Don Pedro de Alvarado. Nut all. Yeah. Hardcore. It's all. Yeah. It's like a really beautiful place, too. Uh, like a huge place, which apparently just had Aztec um, like pottery strewn everywhere. Like, I'll talk about that in a sec. And just, she started growing rare Mexican plants and, like... Hey. Yeah. Hey, Emma. You're yeah. my friend, right? hmm Oh, no. I don't have a thousand I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. Okay. I can't be the your the Phoebe Hearst to your Azalea Nuttall. <laughs> All right. So sorry. Okay. So, of course, there, it was much easier for her to interact with other Mexican archaeologists. Yeah. Makes sense. And, than in Germany? Yeah. Yeah. And she could actually, like, do some field work and delve deeper into the region and 
and whatnot. She could do field work in our new yard, apparently. Yeah, right. And she did. Yeah. Um, she was given an honorary professorship of archaeology at the National Museum of Anthropology in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And she helped at that time to set up the International School of American Archaeology and Anthropology in Mexico, which was run by a few American archaeologists, essentially. Which at that time, Mexico, the Mexican government and America, American government were okay with each other. Uh-huh. And although some parts of Mexican society at that time did not want to acknowledge their indigenous roots, hmm. um, because many depictions of the Aztecs and er- other earlier Mexican civilizations showed things like human sacrifice, which they were like, oh, we're modern and yeah. that's so barbaric. Mm-hmm. She fought really hard to show people there that these sacrifices were like not the norm mm-hmm. and that those earlier civiliz- civilizations were as civilized as we are now, basically. Yeah. Um, and she fought very hard to sh- to... Um, basically say it's important to acknowledge the country's history before and after the European colonization. Mm -hmm. Okay, she also continued her searches for lost manuscripts and items, and she explored Mexico for new clues about earlier civilizations. Not all. Yeah, this is a nut all. For instance, shortly after moving to Mexico, she noticed, I mean, this was like, I don't even know, she noticed a figurine under a stratum of lava near her home that was not familiar to her. What? I can't Does any of that mean? What that is. Like, Did, were there flowing, Were right? there figurines that that I mean, I couldn't imagine were familiar to her? Any figurine and being like that's familiar to me. Like figurine as in like a little kind of doll or like a fig mm. like a human figure in lava. I think it was somewhat big. You know, I don't know. I didn't see a picture of it. I bet there's a paper. This was one of the things I forgot to look up. It's all good. It's just like a very puzzling phrase. No, right? Well, here we go. Okay. <laughs> In 1906, she recovered one complete seated figurine of the same type in another region. So I'm guessing I they've got to be they've got to be of made of something. She's not like yeah. taking out humans from lava. Look, then while visiting the Bishop Plancarte in 1909, she realized he had similar figurines in his figurine collection. I don't know. And she was like, oh, I've seen figurines like that. And the lava behind my house. (laughs) And they had independently come to the conclusion that these were made before the Aztecs came to power somehow. But... Now they had found them all over the country together, collectively. Uh-huh. So they found some figurines from the Aztecs. They just found them. Like, they just are out and about finding those things. It's bonkers. Yeah, it is. I can't really describe it any more than that. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> okay. I want to use my imagination. Sometimes it's yeah. so, all that we need. Also, in that same year, um, she was visiting an island called the Island of Sacrificios, which is... I wonder is... what that means. Wait. Sacrifices? Uh-huh. No. no. Yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering if I just said it poorly so you couldn't actually see. <laughs> no, no. I was, 
I know. Uh, yeah, it's funny that it's called the island of, it's like, you know. Yeah, not like Isla Sacra. Yeah, right. I don't know. Um, and it was a tiny island known to have some sort of interesting kind of morbid history. Mm-hmm. Um, fun, and, fun. Yeah. And when she arrived at the island, she saw pieces of pottery strewn everywhere and became intrigued, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the next time she returned, she had some workmen with her to help her uncover more things there. Um, so she was by herself. This is from a book. Um, called Ladies of the Field. And I have, there's just some of the description is like really interesting. Tell me. Okay. She was by herself. This was one of her first real like independent archaeological findings. Okay. So it's pretty cool. She was off by herself scanning the shore for vestiges of the island's past. She quickly detected a thick embedded layer of burnt lime, perhaps a place where it was originally manufactured. Carrying on, she spotted pieces of cement flooring in the base of a wall coated in plaster. And she followed it. um, Let's see. Her excitement grew as she followed the foundations of an obvious archaeological site. She knelt to the ground and began to tear away soil and roots from the buried surface of a smooth wall. Like she literally just found a building from like 500 years earlier. Is this like, well, you probably don't know this. I just want to, I like, is this an abandoned island? Is it a tiny yeah, island? Yeah, it was really tiny. Okay. It was abandoned. And I think there were sort of stories of the island. Mm, like That sounds so oh, fun. things happened there. Like, well, I'll get to that in a sec, basically. Oh, with, This says, with immense pleasure. She, <laughs> I don't know how much that. She noticed that lines painted in red ochre curved along the face of the ancient structure and they started cleaning off the area and as they cleaned it they found basically the representation of a feathered serpent called the Quetzalcoatl which is this big um it's like a snake bird god cool yeah Very of the cool. Aztecan times nice so a dragonish bird with a long history of a Mesoamerican warship, basically. And it's tied to the island's ritual importance and its role as a place of human sacrifice. So she knew, she had read stories from the 1500s about people going to that island and like dying uh-huh. and being sacrificed there and um, about the Aztecs essentially take when they would win a battle, they might take their enemies there and kill them. Gotcha. So it's sort of this morbid place. Uh And she had essentially been the first person in 400 years to really go there and look at it. You know? Yeah. What? These weird things, I guess. So she realized this was this really important historical spot Uh and applied for funding from Mexico's National Museum to keep visiting and studying the site and Uh wanted to excavate it further because there's obviously all these ruins there that are under sand and um, mud and whatnot. The museum did not give her even half of what she requested, which was $240, (laughs) which was she wanted to leave her comfortable house, her Mm -hmm. mansion, Mm -hmm. and just go stay there for a few weeks. They told her 
she could not visit or excavate most of the site and said she could not go without a man. Huh. And they said that the man that must accompany her on this visit was an explorer named Salvador Baches, the son of her arch rival, Leopoldo Baches. This is a nut all situation. Nut all. Okay. And she hated Leopoldo, his dad, uh, Salvador's dad, because he would always take artifacts from sites to sell them for personal gain. And the both of them had screwed up the museum's organizational system. So this <laughs> is like Indiana Jones um, yeah. and it, like of, all yeah. of the bad guys yeah. uh-huh. that are always trying to like take it for profit or right. for the Nazis. or mm-hmm. Exactly. Whatnot. So she was like, hell no, I'm not going with those guys. I hate them. Yeah. She resigned from her professorship at the museum in protest. Nice. And then weeks later, Leopoldo Batres, who had secretly visited the island since that time, published an article claiming that he had found ruins on the island. Mother fricker. This enraged Celia. Yes! She wrote a 42-page paper. That's not the answer. <laughs> no, it's the answer. <laughs> she published it in the American Anthropologist outlining all the research and work she had done on the island already. Nice. And criticizing everything about the botrices. Nice. <laughs> and essentially, and criticizing Mexico's National Museum for supporting him. Oh, man. And this paper destroyed his career and reestablished her reputation. Whoa. That's badass. I know. She's crazy. I mean, she's not. It's crazy. So. Yeah. And she's Justified. I mean, it, it's, it's not all. Yeah. It's a nut all. It's a nut all. Okay. I'm going to, I want to use this for just whenever I do something rogue. Yeah, this is a nut all. Yeah, this is a nut all situation. <laughs> okay. Let's make it happen. I, I will. Okay, cool. During this time, she would also invite, that was sort of the most exciting story. No, it's not. The rest is still exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah. You're welcome. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> you guys would, can leave now. I'm it's almost over. done is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> okay. She would also invite researchers, archaeologists, and generally famous people stay at her magnificent house of outside of Mexico City. Dig in my backyard. Yeah. She would take great interest in up-and-coming archaeologists, perhaps uh, Mexico's most famous archaeologist, Manuel Gamia, stayed with her and completed the first study of Aztec pottery from the pottery at, in her house. Nice. And then he went on to like become a famous archaeologist. That's cool. Yeah. Um, it was also during this time that the Mexican Revolution began, which lasted from approximately 1910 to 1920. Mm-hmm. While this was technically a civil war that cycled through various phases over that time period, America and other foreign countries were overly involved at different points, of course. With this, there were times of great anti-American sentiment in Mexico. Makes for, sense. Yeah. So in nineteen fourteen, when American troops invaded, some of the, a lot of the rebels were like it was just not safe for Americans to be there anymore. Yeah, that's fair. Um, for Zelia, this meant the end of the American Archaeology School, mm-hmm. which she wasn't. She had helped start, but she wasn't super involved in. Mm-hmm. But it also meant. The death of her son-in-law, so he was killed. Oh no! Husband. 
but still she she essentially I don't think she really ever did a lot more big archaeological like field work Mm -hmm. but she would continue searching through libraries and museums for instance while looking for information on the first witch trials in mexico by the spanish inquisition which sounds i didn't know there were witch trials in mexico yeah she found a work of sir francis drake's that had never been published like a letter of his that was just in a library somewhere um and then she decided to travel to libraries around the world to see if there are other works like this. She found a bunch, she compiled them and published them in a book. And she also studied the Aztec calendar system and wrote a series of papers about it, some of which she presented at different meetings but never fully formally published because she always felt she was missing something. Mm-hmm. But they're published now. You know, someone yeah, was post. like, this is the work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After the revolution ended, sort of... Um, she spent much of her time advocate in Mexico. She never left, really. Okay. Like, she would travel, but she never stopped living there. She spent much of her time advocating for the recognition that ancestors of earlier Mexican civilizations were alive today. Okay. So, like, people had been denying that, you know, Aztecs, like, genes essentially were still around. Mm-hmm. That modern day Mexican peoples were descendants of gotcha. those earlier civilizations. Um and she wanted their culture to be remembered and celebrated. And in nineteen twenty nine she even got the Aztec New Year reinstated as a national festival. Huh. Which is pretty cool, I guess. Um Though her friend Franz Poas wanted to reinstate the international school, he had been the one to sort of start it. Mm -hmm. She was not super supportive at that point, thinking it just wouldn't be accepted in Mexico the way it was before the revolution. Yeah. And I don't think it was ever reinstated. Gotcha. And in 1933, she died um, at the age of 75. And that's it. I love it. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Such intrigue. Cool. Yeah. No, very cool. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting that, like, for so long we just took things, and then now we have to go back and be like, um, yeah, where like, did we where get did, this? And, yeah. like, what? Is it significant what is it? in history, like, or is it, or does it tell us something we don't know mm-hmm. about a certain historical culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. And she, she studied, she published a lot of other things that... I didn't describe, but... Yeah. One of my shout-outs is going to be kind of related to this. Whoa. Okay. So you'll see. I'll see in a minute, I you'll guess. You'll see in a minute. Let's, or right now. Let's go do podcast it. podcast listeners. Work, 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 work. This is the Women Who Work section. Yep. Uh, celebrating the herstory of badass women today. Hell yeah. And I've got two. One that's a little more sour and one that's oh. a little more sweet. Oh, I don't know what that means in this context, but I am excited. Okay. We're just going to jump into it, yeah. and then you'll figure out what it means. Okay. So my first shout-out this week goes to Dr. Bethann McLaughlin, okay. who, woo, 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 woo. Woo, woo, who may or may not still be a professor of neurology uh, at Vanderbilt University what? Medical Center when this um, comes out. 
uh <laughs> your eyes are just like uh i'm scared so dr beth ann mclaughlin is one of the founders of me too stem right oh yeah and she's shared a two hundred fifty thousand dollar disobedience award from mit's media lab for uh ethical nonviolent civil disobedience yeah is she mcneuro yeah 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 um now her job is being threatened Oh, no. And may have already been terminated by the time this podcast comes out. No way. Um, so her, technically her job is supposed to be terminated today, actually, uh, for speaking up about sexual harassment harassment in her department at large. So without going into Why too much. Why is her job being terminated? <laughs> Let me get into <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to get into it without getting too into it because it's a deep, dark web of like, Twitter and anonymous yeah. Twitter handles. I and follow her on yeah. Twitter. Like, yeah, she has a big following. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, without going into too much detail, because you can just get down this rabbit hole and you can do that on your own time. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to tell you how we got here. So in 2014, a former graduate student at Vanderbilt sued her PhD advisor, neuroscientist Aurelio Gali, for sexual harassment and belittlement uh, to the point uh, that caused her to quit her PhD program. So yeah. she sued this guy, mm-hmm. this professor. And after they had settled, McLaughlin went to a small dinner party at Gali's house. So that's the professor. Yeah. Where he vowed to retaliate, retaliate against his former student at any cost. That's so messed mm-hmm. up. And another professor at the dinner who doesn't work at Vanderbilt reported Gali's disturbing behavior to Vanderbilt. Um, and so McLaughlin testified in an ensuing investigation against him, but the investigation was dropped and Golly received t- full tenure or tenure. Yeah, of course. However, Golly then alleged that McLaughlin had sent anonymous derogatory tweets about colleagues and Vanderbilt opened up an investigation on McLaughlin. And this investigation froze her own tenure process and stretched for nearly two years, causing significant damage to her research. And in the end, they didn't discipline her and finally approved her tenure in 2017. Oh, okay. However, the dean of the School of Medicine then asked the committee to reconsider. What the hell? And they uh, revoked her tenure. Oh, wow. I didn't know you could do that. Before it, it got instated. So she didn't... They, like, decided, and then the dean was like, can you reconsider? And then they said, okay, never mind. They're reconsidering her tenure. Yes. Other guy. No, fine. fine. He's not at the university anymore, but I think he has tenure somewhere else. Yeah. So in, in, at some universities, if you don't get tenure, then you have, you have, like, a year before your job ends. Essentially, it's like you either move to tenure or you have to find a new job. Yeah. So that's kind of the case here. Um, so unless someone has something has changed between today and the day this episode comes out, uh, Dr. McLaughlin will have lost her job for speaking out about this potential retaliation by this faculty member. So she is losing her job, I think, today, unless something else changes. And I'm, the story is a lot messier and yeah. darker than I've described. Mm-hmm. There's like she says she got sent an anonymous like box of shit at some point and like yeah there's a bunch of weird stuff that because a lot of it is there's like gag orders and a lot of it's on twitter conversations it's hard to like 
yeah put the whole story together if you want to know more details science did a article on it yeah and so i urge you to check that science article out if you're interested but currently there's a petition for to vanderbilt for uh dr mclaughlin to keep her job which like eight thousand people have signed anyways so uh, we'll try to post things if more stuff comes up anyway so that's my less cheery one but it's more just like we still have some serious issues yeah. of people speaking out um, for workplace harassment. It shouldn't be that difficult to report and be honest about things going on with in your department without worrying about retaliation. Okay, so on a more uplifting note. Okay. Okay. An archaeologist? So, uh, there's a project called Project Phaedra. Oh, yeah. At the Woolback, Cent- uh, Woolback Library which is the Center for Astrophysics in collaboration with Harvard and the Smithsonian. And they're currently trying to catalog, digitize, transcribe, and enrich metadata on over 2,500 notebooks by Harvard Computer and early Harvard astronomers. That's so cool. Um, So this project is being supported by the Smithsonian's Women's Committee also. And one of the points of this is to be able to give due credit to female scientists and yeah. uh, computers from this era. And so so that their impact and work can be kind of fleshed out and we can have more information and give them due credit. They're actually looking for volunteers to transcribe these notebooks. So online they've digitized. Right. So they're digitizing them and then they're looking for volunteers to go online and start trans help them to transcribe. Yeah, so like, like anybody can volunteer to just transcribe these images into right, yeah mm-hmm. uh, like written document and Which a bunch nice of because yeah. then you could like search through the mm-hmm. Im- like with images you can't do like control find yeah. or like look yeah it's exactly it's easier to find things when they're totally digitized yeah. for sure and so a lot of these notebooks are of lady science researchers i was just kind of scrolling through them and they include three women right now one of them's Henrietta Swat Le- Levitt, mm-hmm. Annie Jump Cannon, which is an awesome name. Yeah. And then R. Cecilia Pangaposhkin. Oh, so yeah, if you want right. to go online and help transcribe some of Cecilia Pangaposhkin's like notebooks um, so to help cool. this Project Phaedra, you can go do that. Yeah. So we'll post the link to that I on our website. I have often found those things, types of things mm-hmm. when looking for our ladies mm-hmm. of interest but like you can't always access these kind of archive things that aren't even there's not even images of them and then yeah. it's way easier to find them when you can actually like search for terms and these things might come up mm-hmm. like something small detail in their notes yeah yeah That's and really i think great. there's probably a lot of them that they haven't actually looked at so, like, right. if it didn't get published to an actual, like, journal article, there could be interesting things in there that we yeah, that's don't so know true. was uh, mm-hmm. done or found out by a lady scientist. So true. Yeah. So. Yeah. Go help them out. Yeah. If you want to do something fun while you're also, like, sitting on your couch eating popcorn. Yeah. This is a great opportunity. Sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. So those are my shout outs. One's, oh, yeah. one's like, we still got to fight the good fight. Yeah. And the other one is, we still <laughs> got to fight the good fight. <laughs> nut all. Go nut out and all. nut all. Be a nut all, not be a nut all. all. Yeah. I mean, you still be a nut all. Yeah, nut all is good, good too. Actually. <laughs> one's just be like, be both. Be both. Yeah. Be a nut all, nut all. 
Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, listeners. Yeah. Thanks, Caitlin Friesen. For the for art, the you art. can buy it. You can. You can buy it. And thanks to Artichoke for mm-hmm. our lovely music. And thanks for people who have been writing us reviews. We yeah, had a, it's so helpful. We had a February love for love. You write us a review, you get a sticker. Yeah. Please still write us reviews. We read every one of them and they fill us with joy. I'll like text them <laughs> <Yeah>. to Emma <laughs> and then we'll like giggle and smile. So yeah, if you want to nice. if you want to make us <laughs> giggle and smile, please write us a review. It's not hard, but you yeah. know, it really, you, you know, <laughs> warms my heart. Mine too. Yeah. And on that note, go, go stimulate, stimulate yourself. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for the people and science was.